Hallelujah. Amen. Can we clap our hands unto the Lord? Hallelujah. We love you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Somebody say revival. Hallelujah. Aren't you thankful for what God has been doing in your life? Revival is such a unique thing. It's when God revives. I know we, I know we love harvest, and I believe that is just as much a part of revival. People getting the Holy Ghost, that's a part of revival. But I, I want to see the people that are saved stay saved. I want to see new life brought back to some things that have been dead for a while. And I'm thankful for everything that happens in revival. I believe tonight God is going to speak to another dimension in our life on this journey to be more like Jesus. Don't you want to be like Jesus? Amen. First Kings chapter 2 will be the location of our reading tonight. And we will begin with verse number 28 of First Kings chapter 2. The Lord began to speak to me last night. And you better believe that before God speaks to a people, He speaks to a preacher. And He worked me over, convicted me, and I believe He wants me to share with you His desire for you as an individual and as a church. Verse 28, the Bible says, Then tidings came to Joab, for Joab, Joab had turned after Adonijah, though he turned not after Absalom. And Joab fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord and caught hold on the horns of the altar. It was told King Solomon that Joab was fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord, and behold, he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, fall upon him. Verse 34, So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up, fell upon him, and slew him. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Focusing on verse 29, the Bible says that Joab was fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord, and behold... He is by the altar. He's by the altar. If you'll, if you'll allow me a few moments to uh, relay what I feel in the Holy Ghost, my subject will be this. So close, yet so far. By the altar. So close, yet so far. Would you help me pray tonight? Lord Jesus, we open up our hearts right now. Lord, I feel your sweet presence in this place, and I know that you have come to speak to us. You have come to impart some things that will last to eternity into our spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would remove the barriers. We would remove the walls. We would open up our minds and our hearts to receive the Word of God. Lord, let your word have free course to operate according to your will. And we will surrender. We will obey. We will respond to your word and your spirit. And everyone claps their hands unto the Lord. (laughs) 
Amen. Lord bless you. You may be seated tonight. So close, yet so far. We began chapter 2 of the book of 1 Kings with the passing of David. And in the final hours of his life, the Bible says David charged Solomon, his son. Several things were laid out before Solomon very plainly. Beginning with verse 2, David says, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. Don't be a coward. Stand up for righteousness. Establish your identity. He goes on in verse 3 to say, Keep the charge of the Lord thy God. Walk in his ways. Keep his statutes. Keep his judgments, keep his commandments, or rather his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. You will prosper if you obey these words. But the focal point, in my opinion, of this conversation is found in verse number 5. The Bible said that Joab, or David relays that Joab killed Abner. He killed Amasa. He shed the blood of war in peace, and this act could have jeopardized David's kingship. It could have cost him the kingdom. It could have cost him his position, and it could have tarnished his reputation. We could say that Joab messed up. Joab did wrong. He acted in a manner that was not fitting uh, for a person of his stature. David told Solomon to do therefore according to thy wisdom and let not his whore head go down to the grave in peace. So Solomon began to purge the kingdom. Bible says that Adonijah was killed. And upon hearing of the death of Adonijah and Absalom, Joab hears that his name is on the hit list, if you please. And he reacts by running to the tabernacle and grabbing a hold of the horns of the altar. The implication is quite evident. He knew he was in trouble. He knew he did wrong. And now he's running to the altar hoping it would sway the decision of the king. I could somehow sense a desperation in Joab's actions and in his life. As he runs to the altar, there was a sense of urgency in Joab's life. But the wording in verse 28, perhaps it suggests a shift in urgency. I've heard people preach about the necessity of laying hold of the horns of the altar. I've heard of people using that one line and, and that one scripture and building a foundational masterpiece off of the necessity of the altar. And I agree with that and I believe that. But what troubles me is what is found in verse 29. It was told King Solomon that Joab was fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord and behold, he is by. The altar. You can let me just use my imagination. Walk with me, if you please, and understand that Joab indeed was a human just like you and I. And Joab had emotions just like you and I. 
And it's it, it, the, the picture it paints in my mind is an individual who ran to an altar in a time of crisis but now steps away when it looks like the pressure is off. Because by the time word got back, he had shifted from being on the altar, on grabbing the hold of the altar, and now he is by the altar. You could say, preacher, you're taking, uh, you're taking liberty with this text. Well, I may be to a degree, but understand the message that I'm trying to get uh, into your minds. Uh, he died by the altar. It's not enough to be by the altar. You can't be saved by the altar. You can't get your life right by the altar. What's startling to me is how many people do exactly what Joab did. I know we're talking about a different era, a different day, a different culture. But it's the same action. When they need God in a time of crisis, they're quick to lay on that altar and get a hold of God. But when things let up, they start backing away from the altar. They lose that sense of urgency. They only need God when they need God. My friend, if there's one thing we need to change in our life, it's backing away from the altar. We don't need to be by the altar. We need to lay ourselves out on an altar and say, God, I need you now more than ever. You better hear me. Joab is not the only person that's ever died by the altar. Joab is not the one. Yes, he's the one we're speaking about tonight. And if I could write the epitaph of Joab's life in this era, it would simply say he was so close, yet so far. Let it be made clear today if we are going to make it to heaven. It will not be without an altar in our life. If you're going to make it to the other side of glory, shouting isn't going to always cut it. I'm all for shouting. Shouting's great. Praise and worship's great. We had a high time in this revival with shouting and worshiping. But that in and of itself is not the totality of living for God. Understand this. Altars are not optional. If we're going to make it to heaven... It's going to be because you was on an altar. It's going to be because you laid yourself out. You let God pull things out of your life. You put your old nasty self-will. You put your carnality on that altar. You put all that stinking junk in your life and you laid it on an altar. Altars are places of transformation. They are. Altars are places. It doesn't happen. You cannot be transformed by the altar. You're transformed on the altar. Let me use this analogy. I got, I got a little kick a couple months ago in December. I was going to try to get in shape. I know I look like I am, but I'm, I'm not what I could be. And so I decided I'm going to go to the gym there back home and Paid $40 to get a membership and uh, went two times. They, they made a lot of 20 bucks a visit off of my hide. 
And I, I, I noticed this. I could look like a guy who worked out. I could talk like the guys who worked out. I could even drink the smoothie like the ones who worked out. But as long as I'm standing by the treadmill, nothing was changing. As long as I could do everything that everybody around me was supposed to do. I could blend in with them. I could talk like them. I could drink the protein shakes. I could do everything, and I could, I could walk around, and, and I could work up a sweat, and I could carry me a towel. I could do everything to blend in. But being by the treadmill is not what transformed me. Or I still didn't get on it. What transforms you? Being on the treadmill is what transformed. What are you saying, preacher? You can walk around this altar every every service in a revival. You can wear your clothes. You can sing. You can do all the stuff that everybody's supposed to do and still not make it to heaven. Being by the altar is not enough. You've got to get on an altar. Somebody needs to get a burden to throw yourself on an altar and say, God, time doesn't matter right now. I need an altar. We have churches who are satisfied standing by the altar. Brother Tenney said years ago a prophecy, or rather a, a tongues and interpretation went forth, and it was prophetic of the last days. It said there will be a day when there is a group of people that will praise me but not pray to me. There will be a group of people that will praise God that they won't pray to. Let it not be said of us as a mama or as a daddy or as a church that we get so caught up in praising them and we never get on the altar and we never pray to them because prayer on the altar is what transforms your life. You can sing with no change. You can dance with no change. You can lift your hands, you can smile, you can give, you can talk, you can clap, you can run, and it never change your life. But when you get on an altar, that's where change happens. On an altar. Nobody can make you get on an altar. Your pastor can't. He can offer you opportunity to get here early and to pray. He can ask you to pray. He can do. He can preach about it. He can do everything, but he cannot make you get on the altar. Romans twelve and one said this: I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service. Two things strike me in this verse. First is the word present. If you say it differently, it sounds like present. It's a gift. Greatest gift you could give God is putting yourself on the altar. I heard of a story one time of a man. In fact, it was the man who wrote Search for Truth. 
and uh, he would go when he was preaching at different places. He would tell him on a Sunday morning, I want you to bring tonight your best gift to the Lord. What you would give to God. It could be a family heirloom. It could be money. It could, whatever you think is your best gift, bring it tonight to service. And by service time, everybody had brought their things that they thought were acceptable unto God. And the preacher was nowhere to be found. All through the singing, nowhere to be found. And the pastor would introduce the preacher, and the preacher was nowhere to be found. Finally, after a few moments of awkward silence, the back doors would open up. And that preacher had put himself in a box and wrapped it. And he walked down that middle aisle dressed as a gift. He said, you see, the best gift I could ever give God is myself. That's more pleasing to God than money. That's more pleasing to God than anything. It's when you say, I'm going to put myself on an altar. The second thing that strikes me is it says, which is your reasonable. It's not unreasonable for God to ask us to pray. It's not unreasonable. It's not like it's some tyrant, some dictator uh, asking us to do something that is unreasonable. He gave his life so we could live. It's not unreasonable to get on an altar. It's not unreasonable to pray. It's your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How am I transformed, preacher, on an altar? How do I get my mind lined up with God's on an altar? How do I, I get my emotions out of the way? And how do I get my wrong thinking out of the way? On an altar. The only way you can truly walk in the will of God is on an altar. There are people that want to make decisions that will change their destiny. It will change their family. It will change their future. And they have never stopped to get on an altar and find out the mind of God and the will of God. You can't walk in the will of God without getting on an altar. You can't, you can't stake your future on your emotional instability, your whims, your thoughts, your blurred emotions, your feelings, your hurts. The only way you get all of that out of your system is you climb your hide on an altar and you say, God, I cannot get off this altar until I am changed. Altars are not optional. We're going to be pleasing to the Lord and do his will. Altars will be involved. Second thing I want you to understand is altars are not designed to be attractive. They're not meant to be pretty. I've never seen a pretty altar. I'm not talking about a piece of furniture. I'm talking about the symbolicness of an altar. Altars are synonymous with death. You look all through the Old Testament, you'll see every altar there was had blood on it. It showed death. And to the innocent bystander, it looked repulsive. It was not a thing of beauty on the outside. 
it was not what anyone would consider beautiful. But in God's eyes, it was pleasing. In God's eyes, it was attractive. Hear me, death is never pretty. Every person I've ever talked to that experienced someone dying in their life, even last year when I lost my grandfather, pretty is not the word that comes to mind. Death is not attractive. Death is not pretty. It was never designed to be pretty. When I think of death, I think of agony. I think of struggle. I think of pain. You think of Calvary, which was the altar that the spotless lamb was sacrificed on. Calvary on the outside was not pretty, but on the inside, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to humanity. Nobody likes altars. They like microphones. They like lights. They like their name called. I'm just talking about humanity. I may not even talk about anybody in this building. I'm talking about us. Because we like attention. Look at me. Look at, you, you want, let me just, I'm going to segue here, but I'm going to get back to the message. You want to know how I know people like attention? Because they constantly look at how many people are following them on Facebook and Twitter, and you don't even know half those people. But you like that. I've got 750 followers. You probably really have 10 people that you know. They just want to look at your pictures because they're Facebook stalkers. But we like that. Look at me. Look at me. That so contradicts what an altar really means. An altar, when you get on that altar, you're not looking at anybody. You Nobody's looking at you. See, altars are done when nobody's looking. Altars don't get a spotlight from humanity. But they get a spotlight from God. Because God loves altars. God likes it when someone crawls in that closet of prayer. God likes it when someone crawls in that altar and says, God, I want to be more like you. I want less of me. I want more of you. If I'm going to make it to heaven, I can't do it on my own. We need people who will run to an altar. We need to climb on it. We need to pray on it. We need to snot on it. We need to get lost on it. Where are the prayer warriors that'll get on an altar and say, my life depends upon this? On the altar, by the altar won't save you. By the altar won't change your life. By the altar. That's not going to cut it. I'm afraid that there are people who come to church day in and day out, and they're so close, but they're so far. They're in the vicinity of change, but they're not on the altar of change. Being here does not cut it. That'd be like standing in a parking spot out there and saying, I'm a car. Don't happen like that. Just being there is not where change comes. Change comes when we climb on top of an altar. Final thing that I need to establish in your mind is this altars don't lie. 
Altars always tell the truth. Altars reveal what no man can see. We have a way of trying to hide things. You, you, it's in your DNA. It, it, it's, it's unavoidable. It's who you are. Adam and Eve, fig leaves. Jacob, false identity. We're a people of nothing but fig leaves and false identities. We do our best to cover up who we really are because we don't want anybody to know that we struggle, that we're frail, that we mess up, that we have problems. We put our best foot forward, if you please, and we have learned how to do everything we're supposed to do. And nobody is the wiser. But when you come to that altar, God's not looking at you as much as he's looking at what's on the altar. In fact, he told told Israel in the book of Malachi, he said this, You offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And say, wherein have ye polluted thee, in that you say the table of the Lord is contemptible. That bread to the human eye looked like it would do the trick. Looked like it was a good gift. But when they put it on that altar, God looked at the altar and said, this this is tainted bread. This is polluted bread. That's why he said, if you bring your gift to an altar... And you remember that you have all against a brother. I cannot accept what you put on this altar until you make things right in your life. It would astonish you how many gifts God had to reject. Because people, though God tried to bring to remembrance things that needed to be dealt with, people wanted to keep their fig leaves and their false identity. And God says, as much as I love you and as much as I want to accept this, altars always tell the truth, even when people don't. It's like going to an, uh, an airport and you've got your bag and you've got, to, uh, you, you've got to go through the scanner. And on the outside, nobody around you knows the contents of that bag. Nobody. But you lay that thing open on that table. And it's going to pass through that machine. And it's going to reveal the contents of the bag. It's going to show those people what nobody else saw. That's what an altar does. What well, on the outside, it looks like everything is good. But when it gets on the altar, God says, here's some things we've got to deal with. God says, here's some things in your life that are stopping you from living like me. Here's some things in your life that have been holding you captive. Here's some things in your life that you have brushed under the rug and you have acted like it has not faced you, it has not bothered you. But I cannot let you go through security. I cannot, sir, I know you have good intentions, but but I cannot let you take this gift through this thing until I remove the contents that are questionable. That's what God does when we come to an altar. He says, I can't let you go any further until you remove the contents out of that bag that are questionable. Hear me tonight, ma'am or sir. Uh, altars uh, are for your benefit. Stand with me all over the building as the musicians come. We don't like altars. 
We don't like altars. Altars don't give us goosebumps. Altars don't raise our hair up and, and make us have butterflies. We like that stuff. But altars will alter your life. Halters are the only way we can make it to heaven. Halters only. Let it not be said of you, ma'am or sir, that you're so close, but so far. I used to tell my young people, and maybe this, this is before I kind of used a little wisdom. Maybe this wasn't the best thing. I don't know to tell young people. But I just, it's the only way I knew how to say it. I would tell them, if you're going to go do wrong and be a sinner... Go be the best sinner you can be. I mean, go snort it up. Go drink it up. Go live it up. Go sleep it up. If you're going to do wrong, do a good job at doing wrong. But if you're going to live for God, be the best at living for God. That means getting on an altar. In fact, I think I have a little scripture for that. Scripture says he would rather you cold. That's out there. So far away from him. Or he'd rather you hot. But one thing he cannot tolerate. In fact, he said, it makes me so sick, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Let me just put my words on it. It's people that stand by altars. People that are so close. Yet so far. People whose heart, they're living a double standard. They don't know if they want to serve God or they want to serve the world. I say tonight, we make up our mind as a church that we're going to climb on top of an altar. And we're going to give it all to God. We're going to get rid of some junk in our life. We're going to get rid of some baggage in our life. Is there anybody that's willing to step out of your pew tonight and say, let me get on top of an altar. Let me, we ought to come run into this place tonight. Let me climb on an altar. God, I want to get on top of an altar. I want change in my life. How about it, mamas and daddies? I believe there's room for everybody at an altar. I believe there's room for everybody. This is where change happens. This is where change takes place at an altar.